Welcome back to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Hanley, and coming to you not on the other line, but actually we are in the same room together in a pink, neoliberal, slightly hellscape, um, is, chatting with us while waiting for the apocalypse on Lamentis, it is John McMahon. Wow, Danielle, thank you for including both our neoliberal hellscape, which is pink, and then the moon, which is purple. I think very appropriate all together, but I'm very, very excited to be in person, recording for the first time in the same physical location. Wild. It feels wild that I'm not looking at you through a... I keep looking at my computer screen same. to like be like, where's John? What's, Wait, John? What's make, happening? I can make actual eye contact with this <laughs> other person. That can't be right. It just feels weird in, like, <laughs> pandemic times. What is eye contact <laughs> if it's not through Zoom? I was struggling with eye contact pre-pandemic, <laughs> like, let's be honest. Fair. Oh. Uh, folks, you're in for a wild ride because we've never recorded this podcast in person together. So who knows what's going to happen? It's, it's an adventure, so welcome aboard. Much like the train in Lamentis. <laughs> <laughs> we we're on a journey, and, you know, where, where it ends is hopefully better than Loki and Sylvie's journey. I don't know. Question mark. <laughs> trying, try, trying to keep keep the podcast on track, if you will. Exactly. So you are joining us for Loki Season 1, Episode 3, entitled Lamentis. The director is Kate Heron. It's written the it's written by, and these are the same credits for all the episodes. Bija Kaley is the story editor. Michael Waldron has the written by credit, and then Elisa Karasik is the staff writer on it. And John, do you want to give us the summary of this episode? I sure do. So this episode summary is that Loki finds out the variant's plan, but he has his own that will forever alter both their destinies. Okay. Loki and the variant Silly are trapped on the doomed moon of Lamentis after Silly's temp is damaged after she used it to escape the TVA. The two beings must work together to repower the Tempad and find a way to escape Lamentis before it's too late. That second summary yes. feels helpful. We combined the IMDb official summary with the fan slash user generated. Well, the IMDb official summary is like their destinies might change. It's like, okay, that's the summary of everything. Yes, of every creation of yeah. storytelling everywhere. Like, okay, but the I feel like the fans maybe, like maybe it was like an in-joke, like, this is true across all time and space. Okay. <laughs> You're fired. <laughs> I'm, uh, oh, as soon as we got to physically recording. And I'm uh, listener, going. listener, I'm uh, looking for a new co-host. <laughs> Please have better jokes than John. <laughs> you know what? I got better jokes than Loki does. So Honestly, fair. <laughs> And that's and, and that's that's a slam on Loki, not like a, a praise <laughs> of myself. Let's make that clear to the audience. I ho- I think that the audience by now understands how we view ourselves on this podcast. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Amazing. Well, there's like how they how we view ourselves during all episodes, except me during the grand theory of taste episode. <laughs> that's, I think, a qualitatively different category. I think that that's fair, and I my it's not like I compared us to. Um, on Twitter to, to Kant, right? Uh, you did. Oh, oh no. <laughs> However, oh. I will, full disclosure, I signed off on that. <laughs> That's true. I did check with Danielle before tweeting that. And I feel great about that tweet. I think it's honestly the best tweet you've ever put forward. I don't tweet very often. So. You know what? It's maybe secondary <laughs> to when you tweeted <laughs> APT. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, no one listens to this year, so we can say who I was subtweeting here. Yeah, on, yeah, on yeah. On the Loki yeah. podcast. And honestly, APT needs to be subtweeted. In this case, they do. 
All right, Danielle, I guess we should talk about Loki. Um, <laughs> Don't sound so excited. <laughs> so there's a question that's posed, uh, and I know we have said that you were going to ask me questions to get the episodes going, but I think you have a better perspective on this uh, question in particular and raise it in the discussion pre-show, and that is that uh, Sylvie and Loki engage in this ongoing um, discussion over what makes a Loki a Loki and whether indeed Sylvie is a Loki. Yeah. So what do you think are like the character or uh, self-knowledge level stakes of that question. Yeah. I mean, I actually think that that is the question that the entire series poses, right? I think that like, that is the question that Mobius is trying to figure out, like what makes a Loki a Loki? Because I think Mobius thinks that if he can figure out what that is, he can figure out like how to track this Loki variant who we learn is Sylvie, but how to track this sort of like variant who is a bit off the grid. Yeah. I mean, I, but I think in general, the stakes of that are, are big because we can talk about like the ridiculousness of the like philosophical nature of that question being posed in an MCU TV show, but also like, what, what else is this podcast for? Obviously. But I think like also that question of like what makes an X an X is a question that we encounter as political theorists all the time. Yeah. Right. And even some of the answers that Loki gives mm-hmm. to that question are, have those philosophical and political stakes as well. Right. So yeah. at one point he suggests that it is independence, authority, and style yeah. that make Loki Loki. And that actually was kind of funny. Um, I'll, I'll give them credit there. Style. Um, the style part, um, particularly like, I actually like the variant outfit that Tom Middleton's wearing. Oh, I mean, I. It's a good skinny tie look. It is a good skinny tie look. I have, like, huge issues with Loki's hair. Yeah. Like, like Tom Hiddleston has beautiful, luscious blonde curls. Let the man have blonde curls. Agreed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> agreed. Um, but the independence and authority part are interesting in terms of the kind of philosophical and political questions. But, of course, we also have Sylvie then being like, oh, so you have independence and authority, and that's why you're working for the boring, repressive time police? Not wrong. Not wrong. And... A great joke. Good joke. <laughs> There's even a better version of it later, but we'll get to that. Yeah, it's interesting, right, the way that Loki sees himself as independent, even as Sylvie, like, calls into question that independence. Yes. Because Loki's like, yeah, but, like, I'm doing it for my own purposes. And so he's, like, he's twisted it for his uh, for himself to fit into that sort of, like, list of characteristics that counts as his own self-knowledge. Right. And then Sylvie is telling Loki both that Loki does not know her and does not know himself and that there's perhaps a relation between those two non-knowings, right? And she's very, very emphatic that uh, she does not want to be called Loki and is not Loki. Yeah. Is in fact Sylvie now. Yeah. She requests, first of all, before we meet Sylvie and, and I think before this episode, right? Like we don't actually have her name, but so everyone else is calling her Loki, the the variant, et cetera, et cetera. So in this episode, we we learn that her name is Sylvie, and and she rejects the moniker of right. Loki. Don't ever call me that. She right. Says. Exactly. So what does that rejection do? Does that rejection tell us that Sylvie is is indeed not a Loki, or is that rejection also part of being a Loki? Wow. I, I wasn't expecting that question. That's a good one. Bam. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I am 
willing to take the show perhaps seriously enough to think through the ways in which they the show establishes them as kind of independent being mm-hmm. independent variants such that even if they are both gods of mischief right like gods of mischief can yeah. be plural in they share some of the mischief that they cause and you know there's like ways in which the show is giving having Sylvia or Loki say something to distinguish themselves from one another, yeah. but then they end up doing the thing that they accuse the other person of, right? So there's yeah. really too much of the show is working back on its on the um, distinction or differentiation they're making, right? And so, you know, something like Loki tells Sylvia, okay, so you, you're going to use brute force, I'm going to use diplomacy and guile, <laughs> right? And it's played for laughs, then when his yeah. diplomacy and guile doesn't work and ends up in brute force. Um, and But that also is he ends up, having the same result as Sylvie. Yeah. No, and I think you're I think you're right to read it as like the show reading reading back onto that like attempted distinction. I think the other thing that like just keeps coming up for me is Sylvie consistently like attempts to claim that she is not a Loki and even though some of their like machinations are different. I don't know. The fact that they keep ending up at the same place to me suggests that like Sylvie is a Loki. Yeah. I mean, and there's a way in which, um, (laughs) in the parlance of our times, every show has to be about hashtag trauma, right? Yeah. But there's a way in which the show has both of them experiencing various forms or kinds of trauma and that that inflects the relationship they have with one another, right? For Loki, it's the destruction of Asgard. It's mm-hmm. what happens to his family, his adoptive family, so on and so forth. And for Sylvie, it's that like she literally is just thrown from apocalypse to apocalypse. Yeah. Right? And as she says it several times, like has never kind of had the ability to establish a, an independent existence in the world or an authoritative existence in the world, to use the Loki terms that he proclaims make a Loki a Loki earlier in the episode. Yeah, I would say the, I, I really like that. I would say the other part of it is, is this question of independence, right? Even this is 2012 Loki. Loki at this point isn't particular. He's independent because he needs to be like, it's, it's out of necessity, but he, it doesn't seem like he desires independence. Whereas Sylvie is also independent, I think, because she needs to be. It's, it's out of necessity, but she doesn't seem to like reject that independence. In, in a way, and I'm I'm thinking here, and this is like such a minor moment, but in the in the beginning scene where we see Sylvie watching Loki and Mobius like roll into this apocalypse, yes. um, Loki looks up, like it's pouring rain, and Loki looks up, and like that, I think the read on that is like Loki is expecting to see Thor because Thor, like in other instances in particular in Avengers, which is where this Loki is coming from, the movie Avengers, thunder and lightning and rain was like the sign that Thor was coming. So like Loki looks up expecting to see Thor. And I think like that is to me a mark of like, he's not independent because he wants to be right. Like he's actually searching for that, for that. And I think we get that a little bit in the conversation that they have around partners. Yeah, exactly. And the sense that's the one place where it seems like Sylvie particularly seeks some of the relationality that even as Loki is severed from, right. He still has that access to at various points in a way that she has not given the nature of her time deviance. (laughs) Which I think we'll learn more about. (laughs) (laughs) You think? I I mean, I know, but (laughs) I'm just like trying to not give things away 
right now. <laughs> yeah. Now you raised the interesting question uh, that's kind of lying underneath all of this. And that is, if Loki has any feelings for Sylvie, does that mean that he is in love with himself? I mean, I think that if this is a show about like self-knowledge and self-discovery, then like whether or not either we ship or there is some sort of ship between Sylvie and Loki, which we talked a little bit about last time, I think, um, whether or not that exists, like is also that question to me is a question of like narcissism. Yeah. Like, is this the ultimate act of narcissism? Right. And it's an ultimate act of narcissism in a way that the, what we would kind of more colloquially call narcissism that Loki has expressed throughout yeah. even these first couple of episodes and that I take to be a kind of uh, central character, characteristic of him throughout the MCU yeah. um, more broadly. But yeah, there's a different kind of level when it's like a version of yourself that <laughs> one would, although I, I will say this, like I, I, I think the only, I don't think that the show, and I don't even remember, even though I've seen the show before, that was last summer, I forget what happens next, to be quite honest, um, between the two of them. But I don't think the show is particularly establishing some sort of like love interest between the two of them, other than the fact that like they're both incredibly good looking people. Yeah. I mean, I think like the, the, the like conventional story mechanics yeah. are, are thus impelling us to yeah. ship or to raise the question of shipping. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think like I, your, your point is well taken. I think the, the place where I was thinking about this and thinking about the sort of like, question of narcissism and, and self-knowledge and like, is narcissism like the, like sort of the ultimate end of that journey? There's just like something about that question underlying a lot of what's happening in the show that I can't quite like, I can't quite leave. Is a different version of the question are all self attempt, all attempts at self-knowledge narcissistic in some way? Or is that just like Taking it. I know we're going to take this show way too far <laughs> uh, coming up later in the episode if we haven't already done so, but is that, I mean, I think that that's, that's I, a fundamental, like, what, what, what might this mean in my own life question? Yeah, no, that's, I think that's like where it is. It's like, at w like, where's the line between like self-discovery and narcissism? Yeah. You need to get there. <laughs> don't, I mean, don't ask Stan. <laughs> Loki needs a therapist. As much as Stan does. <laughs> Oh my God. Standing to the therapist in episode zero. <laughs> Same with Loki. Yeah. 100%. 100%. The crossover event of the century, a therapy session. Uh, same there. We'll, we'll do in treatment, except it's only <laughs> like each day of the week is a character from a different show we've done on the Not Quite Great Books podcast. Honestly, sounds like a great idea. <laughs> 10 out of 10 would watch. <laughs> great. Uh, we'll, we'll write that up and get that, get that out. Get uh, that out. <laughs> uh, I do think that part of this discussion, and we mentioned it earlier, but it's worth circling back to very briefly, is that Sylvie does indeed criticize Loki so much yeah. for working for slash with the TVA and the for or with there, they have different answers. What bunch of those would be yes. correct? Um, you know, but like Sylvie's general anti-cop or anti-time cop uh, <laughs> perspective is appreciated. A -cab. I suppose a cab Sylvie. Um, and like we even get in this episode, right? Loki is disguising himself as a guard for yeah. you know, the authorities for the state on Lamentus. Yeah. You, you pulled that out and I, I hadn't thought about that, but there is a sort of consistency with which, and I think this goes back to that set of characteristics that Loki listed out, right? As like, what makes a Loki a Loki? Well, authority is one of those things. And so it, it seems like it is not a coincidence that he's both at least okay enough with working for the TVA, okay enough disguising himself as a guard, like 
I can envision a different kind of character that wasn't as comfortable or seeking authority in the sure. same way that would not like pull those uh, those disguises or those or or step into those roles in the same way. Yeah. And this is all done in an episode where we don't get any Mobius. Um, I was about to call him Morpheus, but uh, uh, we don't get any Mobius. Um, no Jared episode. Leto vampires <laughs> and no, no. Owen Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> no, or, or, or no Matrix. No or no <laughs> Morpheus. <laughs> yes, that's what I, I think I said. Maybe I did say Morpheus, but I meant Morpheus. <laughs> Honestly, it's a lot of names very close to each other. Very close to one another. But... It's, you know, that, that is the person, and you've made this point in our previous episodes, with whom Loki has actually some form of relationality. Yeah. And so in an episode where he doesn't have that to rely on, the, the creature slash being that he would have to rely on is Sylvie slash kind of himself. Yeah. It's almost as if he's like deriving some of that like residual relationality, um, through or with the TBA. Yeah. Which yeah. then takes the form of his disguising himself as the guard for the train. Yeah. And like, and like, again, as much as the episode puts that forward, it also undercuts it, right? Because yes. while like we do get Loki in these, like he takes on the disguise of, of the guard, but then also he's like drunkenly singing it, like in the bar, which is sort of a cutting against the grain of the like carrying out the plan in the easiest way possible. Right. Right. The, and the hedonism versus sticking to the mission is something we'll, we'll talk about. We will get there. Yeah. Um, should we talk a little bit about memory and time with C20 as it comes up? Absolutely. Because the show actually opens yeah. on Sylvie interrogating slash projecting like drinks over margaritas with C20 in her previous life. What Sylvie tells us is that she has to essentially dig through C20's memories, but it's like layers upon layers upon layers down in order for her to get to this, which is like ostensibly a place that C20, Agency 20 was at, at some point, Um, a bar that she attended. It's not, it is like, something that Sylvie created, but she creates it out of a memory. She puts them back in this memory. Yeah. What did you make of this? Uh, I was really confused (laughs) even the second time seeing this, uh, what exactly was happening between the two of them. Although then the explanation from Sylvie, I actually could slide into making quote unquote sense uh, (laughs) later on, but it does. I mean, there's a certain like psychoanalytic reading, I suppose one can offer. Oh, please offer. Um, <laughs> of this in terms of memory, trauma, mm-hmm. kind of where, what one represses and how and why one represses. And then what sort of process is necessary to, uh, you know, have the repressed return, um, or to excavate yeah. the repressed. Yeah. And I, I, I think like, There's something, and again, this gets back to the question of authority, right? And the question of a sort of a question of good and evil, which we were, which we talked a bit about in our first episode, um, that it is not, at least in this sense, it's not C20 that's doing the act of repressing, right? It is her memories are being repressed by an outside agent. Yeah. And, and like, I think this lends some credence to your question earlier, like, a few episodes ago, is the TVA evil? Like, to me, this right here is a really good piece of evidence to, yes. It's, 
is an interesting parallel or an intriguing parallel that's being drawn between the violence that Sylvie has to enact upon C20 in yeah. order to get the memory out is paired with the violence that the TVA enacted so as to repress the memory of the previous life. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think the other thing that's that we sort of learn here, and we learn this at the end of the episode, but it's a nice bookend, or towards the end of the episode, but it's a nice bookend, is that the TVA agents are are actually, in fact, variants, right? Yes. That this goes along with the the memory that Sylvie has unearthed here is this like set of this explanation that we get that the TVA are themselves variants and they had these outside lives. They had these things that happened to them. It starts to bring some of the like random things that Mobius is obsessed with into, into focus, like the jet skis and like the like nineties, like Jolt Cola, (laughs) (laughs) which are like, fun Easter eggs, but also like there's always been something that's like a little bit glitchy with them. Yeah. That's a, I think that's a really helpful way to put it that the glitchiness is in fact a residue of the variant to time fascist time cop. Yeah. uh, Process. Yeah. And I mean, I think like all of this, and again, this is something we've touched on before, but all of this raises the question of like who who is doing the the repressing and for what purpose right like why are these variants essentially like brainwashed or like brain wiped yeah um why do they need to be why can't c20 just like i don't know like a cop on the street just like sign on up for this right like what's the what's the relationship between the organization and its workers that requires like a sort of wiping of consciousness. Mm, yes. It's uh yeah. What is the, what is the cost of, of becoming a, a boring, <laughs> repressive time police uh, yeah. officer? Automaton. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Enjoying that particular security apparatus. I have two silly questions. One, would you like to go to that bar and get a margarita with me? Please. <laughs> And two, I want to go to this uh, condemned by the health department bar in Philly. Oh, you're telling me about. oh, Mad Max with the big as margaritas, A Z Z. Great. Um, <laughs> that's just that's wrong on more than one level. It's so many levels. Impressive work, I suppose. Oh my god, light. the best margaritas. But the other like silly question I have is like, what would the like? what would the bar that was unearthed for you be or look like? Like what would the, the, the like place of like comfort and fun where you could have a silly conversation that like lives in your mind, even though you're not aware of it. What's that place for you? Oh, so it has to live in my mind, even though I'm not aware of it. Yeah. Cause I was going to go to like, where do I have good associations? I mean, it with? could be that too, but like, even if you were, if you were totally brain wiped, like what would still stick? What do you think? Like for me, it would be the beach, right? Like for me, it would definitely be either Jones Beach or Robert Moses. Like that would be the place that like you could wipe every atom from my body and every piece of consciousness from me. And I would still 
like come back to that. Yeah. I mean, in part because like I've moved around a lot. Yeah. Uh, both in child, a child and an adult. Like mm-hmm. I don't have necessarily oh, like that one single place. Right. It'd be relationships. Right. Okay. Like Sylvie would have to go become a projection of like of you or some other like dear friend in order to uh, <laughs> extract it. So maybe you're actually Sylvie right now and extracting things that I don't even understand what's happening. I mean, I this, this place does feel like a glitch in the Matrix. <laughs> That's like, right. are we in the next Matrix sequel? <laughs> That's we right. Might Our, be. The co-working space we have joined for Where is Neil Patrick Harris when you need him? <laughs> uh, I don't know if we need Neil Patrick Harris. Oh, uh, I was just thinking as the, like, creepy villain in that movie. Not not as a person I need in my life. <laughs> Tom Hiddleston, yes. Neil Patrick Harris, <laughs> no thank you. So the one other thing about the, you know, if we have... The TVA is more clearly the villains now. Mm-hmm. That also makes it easier to slot Loki and potentially Sylvie as well in the archetype of the hero or anti-hero. Yeah. The more the TVA becomes clearly oppressive, clearly yeah. stealing people and wiping their memories and yeah. doing all these sorts of things. So there's a sort of structural effect on the show of that reveal as well. Yeah, I mean, I think also the the piece I keep coming back to, and I think it's related to this, is the fact that, like, Sylvie and Loki's uh, magic doesn't work in this place. Yeah. And, like, which is another, I think, important form of repression within the MCU, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, again, like, what what kinds of places are, are like, guarded against even, yeah. like, illusion magic, which is particularly important in this episode, given the deep emotional ties that Loki expresses about the magic fireworks and his own family, right? (laughs) So, like, to the extent that we want to kind of think through the emotionality or affectivity of magic for him, that's a connection that's explicitly made in the episode that I think highlights the point that you're you're making. Yeah, and I think it goes back to the question of what makes a Loki a Loki, right? Like, magic is part of that. And, like, for... Tom Hiddleston's Loki that is deeply connected to his mother. I don't think that we from Sylvie's Loki's Sylvie's magic is not necessarily like connected to that sort of like emotional yeah. like familial attachment, but she does seem like she is quite reliant on it. So there is certainly like an emotionality to it there. Absolutely. Although she teaches herself magic, right? Which is an interesting, if we think about who has independence, authority, and style, that requires the independence, the authority, and the style. I will say that Sylvie has good style. Yeah. I like the one, I like the broken horns. (laughs) It's a vibe. All right. Um, I think we we move on to a different vibe of Marvel's planning. You know, I love to Marvel's plan. I do. I do. Super happy to be here. All right. A question that I asked you already, so I know the answer to, but you had a a good context (laughs) for it. Right. So we have Loki singing in what is uh, in the show presented as Asgardian uh, on the bar, at the bar uh, on the train. Yeah. And so I asked Danielle the question of like, (laughs) is this like Elvish in Lord of the Rings or Dothraki (laughs) in uh, Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire, in which like people have actually developed a working language. Um, And And my my response was, oh, sweet summer child. (laughs) One, Loki is singing in Norwegian, I believe. Um, But the question about like, is it like Elvish or, or Dothraki where like, authors have taken time to like fully develop these languages. Like work with linguists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, and to which I laughed and said, of course not. And like, I think that that speaks to the depth of the world, right? Like the MCU is, is expansive and the, and the comic book, like the Marvel comic book universe is also incredibly expansive. We're only getting pieces, but there isn't a ton of depth, right? There's a lot of like flash and shine without a lot of depth. And I think like the like working with linguists and the language development part is a mark of like the depth of the world, which like, I think it's probably surprising that I'm saying this and not John. I was just going to say like, <laughs> let's make it clear that Danielle is saying this of her own volition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am not inside her mind. Listen, compelling this. Edition. I still fucking love the MCU, <laughs> but I, I think part of why I love it is because it's not that deep. <laughs> And, and like, I, you know, I've said this before, and if you have listened to our uh, recently dropped meta narrative episode, um, I enjoy that lack of depth. That's actually part of what's entertaining for me. I spend a lot of my life in these like very depressing books. <laughs> this is not depressing. Yeah. I feel great about that. I'm thinking about uh, a grad school friend who I don't think you know, Danielle, who has a tattoo in Elvish on his arm. Oh, nice. I, this is not that, but I really want to get, um, the, <laughs> the feminine conjugation of know thyself, which is like what's inscribed at Delphi. And it's like one of the things that like Socrates says in the apology. I really want to get that, which I think is my version of like having an Elvish tattoo. Yeah. Or my <laughs> version of a Foucault or Deleuze or body which tattoo. John has all of those. I do have all of those. Um, <laughs> Our next trip to Troy should probably include a tattoo shop. This is true. Um, we got to do some research. You have to do some research. Time for owl tattoos. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm in. I'm in. I'm ready, right? I'm, we can do it today if we finish early enough. Um, all right. So my next question in Marvel's planning, Danielle, is so the C20, Sylvie finds out that she had this earlier life, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. I get that part of the reveal. But okay. I am less clear on what Sylvie learns from C20 is what she actually learns about the inner workings of the TVA yeah. and the conclusions that she draws from what else she discovers from C20. So part of the question I'm going to decline to answer, I'm not going to like go f- too far into the conclusions, but I'll give you the, like what she learns part. Cause I think we learn a little bit more about those conclusions in the next episode. Sure. Um, but in terms of what she reveals to Sylvie, I think like what she reveals is where the timekeepers are and, and how to get to them. And I think one thing we have to remember is like, it doesn't seem like Sylvie has a ton of experience in the TVA. She has a ton of experience in these like apocalypses and in these moments where she encounters the TVA, but she doesn't have a ton of experience in the TVA. And so when, when they're transported back there, like I think she gains from C20 some information about how to like move around that space. Okay. That makes sense. Cause I'm, you know, I did raise the question of, why did Sylvie go to the TVA if her magic's not going to work there? I don't think she knows that her magic is not going to work there again, because she's not used to engaging the TVA on their own terms and in their own space. Yeah. All right. So my final question in Marvel explaining that you could explain to me, Danielle is so at a certain (laughs) point, Loki and Sylvie come to the conclusion that if they are on the ship that Mm -hmm. is going to leave Lamentis, it will actually take off as opposed to like exploding or crash landing or something. 
why or how do they come to that conclusion? So it's a very deep sigh. Yeah. Cause it's like one of those things where I'm like, Oh, like the time travel stuff doesn't always work for me in this show. And I love a time travel, anything as someone who is aggressively watching the new time traveler's wife <laughs> and who the time traveler's wife is my favorite novel. Um, so I think that the, the answer to your question is that, Loki concludes that because he and Sylvie have never met before, um, they have never together been on this ship. So like, it's possible that that small tweak of being together could change the whole thing. Now I I don't buy it. (laughs) Right. My, my, like the the biggest ding against that, that I think that that's his working theory. And that actually feels like a theory that Loki would like, by whole hog. Right. Cause it centers himself. It centers himself. It centers like his really, the relationship with Sylvie and the, like all of the, the whole blue around that for him. But I think like the problem here is that that presumes that Loki and Sylvie have never met before, which like Loki would not have any ability to know. Correct. Sylvie possibly might, because it seems like she has like her mind hasn't been, been wiped or, the logic is flimsy, but Loki loves flimsy logic. So like, we'll take it. Very mischievous. All right, Danielle, time for some mischief of our own. Uh, let's do a little Easter egg hunt. Please. I'm one for two. One for two. For the make or break episode. Okay. So just to remind our listener, <laughs> listeners, I think <laughs> yeah. now we know we have listeners. listeners. Yeah. So, so Danielle, we should make clear, Danielle and I are aggressively, like, not trying to track listenership. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're accumulating listeners anecdotally. Yeah, and we love it. So if you're our listener, send us an email, yeah. shoot us a DM. As you'll discover in the episode coming out this Thursday, we'll read your listener mail. Online. Literally. Like, uh, no, no questions asked. No questions asked. We love it. So for our listeners, I am going to give John a list of three potential Easter eggs, and John has to figure out which one is not the Easter egg. Okay. So the first is Loki shapeshifting on the homestead. (laughs) Okay. Okay. The second is um, the quote, love is a dagger. And then the third is the language that keeps coming back over and over again in this episode of enchanting. Which of those is not an Easter egg? Wow. So I can presume, uh, based on seeing no other Loki care, no other things in which Loki is a character, that he can like shapeshift and take on others. So I'm going to say that is in fact an Easter egg. Okay. So that gets me to love as a dagger and enchantment. Mm-hmm. And the way that love as a dagger is played for both seriousness, but also for jokes and the fact that uh, enchantment maybe is something that Loki briefly covered or covered related to back in the first, second episode. I'm going to vote for Love as a Dagger is not the Easter egg. John, two for three. Look at that. I'm a, I'm a basically a Marvel expert at this point. Amazing. So uh, you yourself explained the, the shape-shifting quite well, so I'll leave that. The enchanting is interesting because in the comics – um, Sylvie is not a variant of Loki related. Just going to say that. Um, but Sylvie is known as the enchantress. And so mm-hmm. the fact that Loki keeps calling her, her magic enchanting that she's enchanting him, that, that this is like, this is enchanted. Like that is, um, like, like heavy language 
in MCU land. Great, as I knew very well. Yes, of course, as you as you knew. I'm just I'm just Marvel explaining yeah, your audience. knowledge. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> I'm so kind of you. So generous. Oh my god, uh, John, do you have a minor character of the week for us this week? I do. I think the minor character of the week is the harp player on this weird train on Lamentis. Love it. Who sadly goes uncredited even on IMDb. Um, so shout out to the harp player and their harp. Yeah, just like some some person hanging around in Atlanta on the soundstage. I guess. With a harp? With a harp. Um, <laughs> I'll take it. Oh, there is a musician credited for some kind of harp, but uh, I don't think it's the person it, it, playing the harp. Right, right, right. It's probably a musician who's playing the harp for the soundtrack. Exactly, yeah. Um, so, okay. And I think just generally like the the extras or the background players at the bar. Yeah. Active, you know, who are... No one's actually singing along with Loki. Well, he's singing in Asgardian. Right, right. Asgardian. <laughs> and they're on Lamentus One, which is a moon of Lamentus. Yeah. So <laughs> the edge of Creeland. The bartender seems to be at least into Loki buying a bunch of drinks. Yeah, yeah. Listen, and they, the harp player's just like, look, someone wants to accompany me on this harp. Cool, let's go for it. Listen, I think like they're on board for whatever language he's singing in. They don't get it, but they're like, we're on board for a good time. The world is literally ending. Yeah. It's happening. All right. Very cool. All right. Let's get into glass. Let's get into glass. All right. So we get this uh, line from Loki and then from Sylvie. They disagree on the uh, meaning or purpose of it, but it is that. A uh, Loki is hedonistic. Mm. How do we see that on this episode? And I'm perhaps maybe this is a bonus Marvel explain, but how does the theme of hedonism kind of underlie the character of Loki beyond just this TV show? Ooh, I love that question. I think like to answer the the sort of underlying hedonism, I think mischief and hedonism are like they're bedfellows. Sure. Right? Mm-hmm. There's not, uh, and I think like this is probably one of the the lines of distinction we see between Sylvie and Loki. Sylvie doesn't seem interested in having any fun or just like pleasure for the sake of pleasure, and Loki's like, well, we're on this train, so like might as well get drunk and sing. Yeah. And so I think that there is something about just like indulgence mm-hmm. that is part of that is that is part of Loki. And and part of what makes a Loki a Loki. Yeah, and it's almost perhaps if mischief is the other regarding or other directed mm-hmm. uh, face, yes. then the self-regarding face of that would be the hedonism. Yeah, and like this is not in this timeline, but like I am recalling, so in Thor Ragnarok, which is, we see the end of that in the montage in the first episode. Okay where Asgard is destroyed. But in that movie, Thor Ragnarok, the opening scene is Loki has disguised himself as Odin, his and Thor's father. And he's just like watching a play about the like death and like the martyrdom of Loki. Um, Loki in that, in the play is played by Matt Damon. Right. <laughs> like, it's actually like one of the best, like best scenes. And Loki is so he's disguised as his father, who's like commissioned this like play and celebration of his fallen son. There's like a statue of Loki. Now Loki's not dead and like is very much there. And Thor rolls back into Asgard like after he's been like off fighting some monsters and stuff. And is like, what the fuck is going on? So I really do think the sort of just like 
like self-indulgence part of this, like does seem to be pretty core and like the, the, the failure or the, the unwillingness to like think beyond the moment seems to be like a big point of distinction between Loki and Sylvie. And so there's a connection that's made in the long conversation that Sylvie and Loki have on the train before Sylvie falls asleep and Loki gets drunk and starts singing where they're talking about love Mm -hmm. and the relationship between love and hedonism, of course, is like a fundamental question of philosophy or or aesthetics or something. Um, But then is underlying the fact that both love and hedonism and the differences, but also some overlap mm-hmm. of Loki and Sylvie with regards to those two uh, mm-hmm. orientations is raised as well. Yeah. And I think like, this is also the, the part of that, that perhaps the show wants to be a bit more philosophical, which like we can decide whether or not we accept that. Um, <laughs> John's giving a thumbs down in the room, everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the part of that, that the show wants to make somewhat philosophical is like then the discussion of sexuality that ensues. Right. Right. Like this question of like princess or, or prince and Loki's response is a little bit of both. And Mm -hmm. Sylvie's like, yeah, me too. And that's like a big moment in the MCU, which I know is wild. It's only the second time in the MCU that like sexuality has been explicitly, uh, addressed. I'm not sitting here saying that that's like a good thing or that it's even done any justice, but like there, this, a big deal was made about this by the director, by the writers, by Tom Hiddleston and, and Sophia DiMartino who plays Sylvie. Like a big deal was made by all these people. Yeah. A big deal is also made about like a 1.2 second gay kiss and uh, a kiss between two queer characters in the last Star Wars movie. <laughs> oh my nine. God. Like a huge deal was made ahead of time yeah. and it was like 1.2 seconds worth of a yeah. kiss. So like it's mostly eye rolls for me at, the, at, at that and, and at this even. And this is certainly slightly more substantive than uh, that Star Wars example, but like basically eye rolls for me. Yeah, but I, uh, listen, I think the eye rolls are totally legitimate. And I think, like, the expecting us to, like, take this as, like, a, a real serious step is is somewhat laughable. Yeah. However, like, the, the, the connection between, like, hedonism, love, and sexuality, like, I think is a question worth engaging. Absolutely. And I think in some ways that, that that's part of, I think, what leads me to the eye roll, that, like, it's actually something that's tangential to anything mm-hmm. that the show seems to be more legitimately caring about yeah. um, or becomes part of the thematics of the show. Uh, Loki's thoughts on love are played both for laughs, but also for seriousness as well. Yeah. So we get the seriousness of the com- of the conversation he has with Sylvie about his mother, um, the way he's kind of idealizing his mother when talking about like the memories he has of her. And of course it's revealed, I guess, to this Loki that she will die or, die has die i'm not sure what my tense is here uh will die i believe would be the that the yeah i but the thing is is like it's unclear if they have the same parents fair enough um but regardless and then you know later loki is like i've been drinking and singing so now i have realized that love is a dagger um and he has an actual theory which is not the worst i want to say no and silly just like that's fucking ridiculous (laughs) i mean is love a dagger maybe yeah i'll take it I don't know. I, the, the like 
cynical part of me is like the pandering of this is frustrating. The less cynical part of me is like, well, it feels meaningful that this conversation is even happening, which I think is a bigger mark on like how backwards like culture is than anything else. I think what, what particularly rubs me the wrong way is not so much the fact that it's in the episode or in the episode, the way that it is, Mm -hmm. but like the, gloating, credit-taking, credibility-seeking from the outside, from whether it's the actors or the writers or Marvel itself, because, like, there's a 20-second discussion of bisexuality or pansexuality. That's that's more what I have the problem with rather than the fact that it's in there itself. That's fair. Does it change anything? If if one of the people that's taking credit for it, like, self-identifies as queer, does it change anything for you? Yeah, slightly. Yeah, so the director, Kate Heron, is, like, a queer director, and, like, and this was a meaningful thing for her. Yeah. And I think it, like, and she's talked about this in interviews, like, that it actually was, like, meaningful in terms of, like, her own, like, self-identification and, and, like, sexual identity. Yeah. So I think, like, because that is like knowledge I walk into this with, it's like impossible to detach that. But I don't think that that undercuts the like, listen, Kate Heron is not the only person like taking credit for this, right? It can be a really meaningful part of her journey. It can be doing something meaningful in the world for people who are like, Oh, finally I can sort of see myself on screen. And also like, it can be the pride flag, t-shirt at walmart <laughs> like Correct. at the same time yeah. it's it's both like corporate pink washing or queer washing exactly at the same time that it can be meaningful for kate heron exactly because like ultimately like disney is a large corporation and like there there are like our internal and external debates over whether or not this should even be a thing and so like you can't detach that from any of this absolutely Let's get into another debate. Okay, great. <laughs> so one of the things that, one of the thing, my, I think, favorite exchange in this episode is when Loki's like, I have a plan. And then, like, his plan is to put on a costume. Um, and, and it doesn't work. And Sylvie comes to the rescue. And then Sylvie's like, by the way, like, that is not a plan. A plan has multiple steps. And so, um, I, John, I pose this question to you. What counts as a plan? I think two steps. I think if you have two steps, you've got a plan. Or one step with, like, some expected outcomes. Accounts. Honestly, I'm, like, team one step. Like, one step (laughs) feels like a plan. Like, did I want Loki to have more steps? Yeah, but, like, yeah, dressing up as a guard, expecting it to work out, feels like a plan. Yeah. I mean, I I think about it this way. Like, we came to Troy, New York today, and, like, we did have live we from have, Troy, New York. Yeah, we had specifically a specific plan of we're going to eat tagines because there's a great Moroccan place in Troy, New York. As we discovered last summer, we love the tagines mostly here. randomly. Terra um, Kitchen, yeah, yeah. I'm fine. They don't need to sponsor us to say go to Terra Kitchen and a couple of different central New York capital region <laughs> locations, uh, or say capital region rather than central New York. Those are two different things. But anyway, news right? To me. And then we. <laughs> You went to Cornell. You, you literally were in central New York. I know, but, like, I still think it's upstate New York. It's not. It's, it's anything not. above the city is upstate. Yeah, don't, that's, that's wrong. I mean, <laughs> it's well known that it is known that, uh, <laughs> um, that Danielle's geography is, you know, she's a brilliant and wonderful person in many ways, and part of her, her brilliance does not include geography. It definitely does not. <laughs> I 
I mean, I was I was talking to someone yesterday, and I was talking about Iowa, and I was like, I don't even know where that state is. <laughs> driven, I've driven across Iowa before in my life. Is it before Colorado? Going in which direction? From here to Colorado. Yes, you would get to it. There's there's a whole another state before you get to Colorado. What's the other state? You would go from Iowa to Nebraska to Colorado. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I've done it. I've done. I've done the drive from Colorado to Wisconsin. It's kind of like those cornfields in the last episode of The Americans we watched yeah, outside right. of DC. Yeah, um, <laughs> you, you get about fifty miles out of Denver, and then you've got like literally almost a thousand miles of corn. Oh my God. Um, okay. <laughs> Wait so... a second. I want to finish the, the plan. Oh yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So yeah plan. Machines. We've got the plan. And then, you know, we were like, hopefully this co-working space, we are not at a WeWork. I no. We would not degrade ourselves that way. No. Though, we, though one of us, this one of us that's speaking, did love uh, the Jared Leto show about WeWork. <laughs> I would I, I would watch we that. We crashed. Um, uh, Jared Leto doing a weird accent? Sounds like my perfect <laughs> afternoon. And, and Anne Hathaway just like being ethereal and done. So we we were like, all right, definite plans to go get to Jeans. Hopefully this co-working space in Troy is going to work out. Yeah. And to me, that counts as a plan, right? We had a specific action and then yeah. a vague intention. And that was a plan. That seems like what Loki had. Specific yeah. action, dress up as a guard. Vague intention, get on this train. Steal the power source? I don't even know. No, get that. on the train. They want to get on the train. Right. That was like when they were trying to like jump the line for the train. Okay. So, listen, is it the best plan? No. Loki is not known for his brilliance. Brilliance does not make a Loki. Mischief. Mischief, independence, authority. Exactly. One thing, and Danielle made an admission earlier, so I feel it's only fair that I make an out-of-character admission here, and that is that I understand that Marvel gets a lot of shit for how the visual effects uh, look, particularly on the TV shows, um, and also in Doctor Strange, from what I hear, but uh, I think Lamentis looks pretty cool. Yeah, and I, I said this to John when we were planning this, but like I think... One of the coolest things about Lamentus is, like, we know that it's green screen, and so they, like, use it well. It's not like, oh, let's pretend to put Luke Skywalker's face on, I don't know, Sebastian Stan's body or whatever deep fake thing is happening. Like, hard pass. Hard pass. Um, but it's like, oh, let's just like go ham with crazy effects, like, and make this look like a moon is crashing into another moon. Like, yeah, done in. Yeah. It does look cool. Yeah. And the, I like the purple yeah. in general color aesthetic, purple, green, my two favorite colors. So I would oh, like that. And then also, I mean, just the, you know, the fact that Loki and Sylvia are able to dodge all these asteroids or like planet <laughs> chunks or moons. I have some questions about, but yeah. it does look pretty. Yeah, I think, like, the... We know that part of it is, like, well, they can't die because it's the plot. But, like, also, it do, yeah, it looks cool. And it's, like, a little bit suspenseful, yeah. you know? John, you have written here that there is a surprise for Danielle. So yeah. can we get to that? We, because... we sure can. So earlier, Danielle, we, we had pitched uh, on the spot. We had come up with in treatment but characters from TV shows we watched. Sure. So I'd like to make another pitch for something that... You know, there's a different version on a different timeline, if you will, of this episode of Loki. (laughs) This is basically like what we could write. What if it was your favorite movie, political theorist's favorite movie, Melancholia, Uh, but 
lamentous one, and it was a crossover event of a lifetime. I still forget that melancholia. I get I get melancholia and Elizabethtown confused. In my wow, <laughs> two very different movies. But they both have Kirsten Dunst they in them. They do both have Kirsten Dunst in them. I've seen Melancholia a few times. Never seen it. I do not care about it. I like miss me with Lars von Trier. <sighs> Look, an abhorrent human being. Um, I do love Melancholia. I'll give it to you. And you a and large majority of political every, theorists. You and every other political theorist, including a number that I also like. <laughs> Great. You know, I'm in good company here, actually, for the most part, uh, on likers of melancholia and political yeah. theory. Do I love this? No. But, like, could it work? Absolutely. All I have is I had in my notes, this is like Loki plus melancholia. So <laughs> I think that that's right. I mean, I think it would be, I'm just trying to think about, like, Lars von Trier dialogue on Lamentus. <laughs> Great. I mean, presumably, I mean, just like you know, body horror. <laughs> poor, poor, poor Chloe Zhao got kind of stuck with the Eternals, and apparently that was a mess. So, I loved the Eternals, and also, uh here we return to my favorite recurring segment. <laughs> Where I get to talk about Harry Styles on our podcast. Oh, okay, great. I was like, wait a second. I didn't know we had this bonus, but I, I should have known. I should have known. Harry Styles? Yeah. We had a we had a Harry Styles conversation yesterday yeah. before we had a Harry Styles conversation recording yesterday. It is true. So Harry Styles is in the Eternals because right. he's in one of the he's in one of the post credit scenes. He is Star Fox, who is Thanos's brother. And I was like, my sister sent me a YouTube video uh, the other day that was like Harry Styles laughing at signs at his concerts, and one of the signs said, "Brother of Thanos." snap <laughs> like snap please and you just see him like plop the sign and like <laughs> like recoil a little bit and i'm just like oh god i love it so much like that is some supreme daniel content it's honestly it's perfect yeah i couldn't have designed i mean melancholia logi is number two but like that's the only thing that's better listen you know what would make this show better for me is if harry Styles' star fox rolled in and was like you have to come help us find the other Eternals. Pass. Can we have him do something more interesting than that? To be fair, what do you think is interesting in the MCU? Um, <laughs> Harry Styles is like uh, a philosopher who comes in and sings philosophical songs that take <laughs> MCU shows to the level that we're taking. That's it to. not the MCU. That's <laughs> the Danielle John universe. That's the not quite great books CU. <laughs> great. Cool. Then Harry Styles can come there. I'm okay. Let's right. move so on. So I gave Lamentis some credit. Yeah. And now I think it's time to offer some a very <laughs> typical complaint of there's just like a lot of violence that Loki and Sylvie commit and like zero <laughs> drops of blood are spilled. And I understand this is a very common complaint about yeah. like IP. Uh, and the MCU and yeah. Star Wars and so on and so forth. Um, and it's, I think, worth raising here because it's like there's a lot of people getting kicked and bunched and stabbed and stuff and, like, nothing happens as a result. Yeah, I mean, I have a note here. Sylvia's a good fighter. <laughs> like, all of a sudden they get back to the TVA and she has no magic, but she can sure throw a punch. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's both at the TVA and also on the train yeah. and also the final scene. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't really have a good, I don't have a good rejoinder to that. I think that you're right. I will say that the sticks that like disappear people 
feels like it, as close as we get to like a more realistic form of violence. Like being being deleted feels like worse than being punched. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. Uh, yeah, but I'm I'm with you. Like the violence is bloodless, yeah. but that and like that's a pretty standard complaint, and also like a well-founded one. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say that while Lamentis looked cool for the most part, I thought the one time where like the this is all just happening on a soundstage with the giant green screen mm-hmm. became a little too much for me was the last few minutes of the of the episode when they're in the city fighting oh. the guards. And like running around. Yeah. Yeah. It was a little bit claustrophobic. Yeah, it was a little bit more like, you know, there are plenty of you know, you that I see links to that I don't actually click on because I'm not interested enough. But like, <laughs> here's like ridiculous scenes from the MCU where yeah, like, yeah, yeah. the green screen effects are too much. And that's where I think that, that yeah. that's the one scene from Lamentis that would fit there. Yeah. And I think that's also the scene that is like reliant on the green screen, right? Like that that's part of the problem. It's not just like part of the environment. It's yeah. like the main focus. Good point. Good yeah. Point. Um, I have something. So this is, so Michael Waldron, who was a writer and I believe showrunner on, um, Rick and Morty, which is an awesome, like time travel sci-fi show. Um, who is the writer of this season of Loki and he'll be the, one of the, he'll be the executive producer on season two. But he says that, like, the before movies, so, like, before sunset, before sunrise, uh, before midnight, like, all of those are some of the influences of him. And, like, those movies all take, like, the, like, they take place on a train, right? Like, that that's sort of, like, one of the key things. And it's this, like, a little bit more serious rom-com two-hander um, that takes place on a train. So, just, like... I love that that is an influence and we like see that here. Yeah. Before Apocalypse, the fourth, the little <laughs> yeah. do we know is actually a tetralogy. Honestly, now Ethan Hawke is in the MCU as Arthur Harrow. So like it could happen. Great. We couldn't protect, we couldn't save him too bad. So our one good joke of the episode, yeah. oh, I think I admitted our, earlier already that I laughed more than one time <laughs> uh, about this episode is the time at which they are on the train, Sylvie and Loki, and they're talking, and Sylvie, uh, Loki mentions something on the TVA, and Sylvie says, oh, you mean the omniscient fascist, uh, the omniscient fascists you work for? And I'm yeah. like, you know what? I laughed at that. Good yeah. joke. And uh, remember, ACAB Sylvie. I was just going to say, Sylvie is ACAB, so... Yeah. All right, so this is this is an example of me taking the MCU way too seriously. Buckle up, everyone! (laughs) So I want to discuss the ethical (laughs) quandaries that are raised uh, in what I think we should call the Loki version of the trolley problem. So we have at several points in this episode, we could ask ethical questions about. Loki and Sylvie and their relationship to all the other people on yeah. Lamentis trying to escape. Right, so this happens the um, first time when they are cutting the line, right? Yes. When Loki is disguised as the guard and is like, here's this prisoner, I'm going to like, and then mm-hmm. Sylvie enchants the guard and mm-hmm. to get onto the train, right? So presumably they have taken two spots from the on the train that's getting people to the arc right. from other people, right? So there's like, a, well, why is it that Loki and Sylvie get to jump the line and get onto the train, right. right? So there's that kind of ethical quandary of like, is it fair that they were able to do that? You know, granted, okay, they're the protagonists of the show or whatever, mm-hmm. so of course they are, but like, there's this ethical question to ask. Yeah. But then at the point at which uh, Sylvie and Loki 
think that if they get on the arc, the arc actually gets away. That would then mean that them skipping ahead of everybody and getting to skip the line is, in fact, like a utilitarian good or ethical good. Yeah, because, because they're saving all of these people who would otherwise be doomed in the apocalypse. Yeah. So the show, I think, raises this ethical question or allows us to raise the ethical question, but then like pulls that away and kind of resolves the question out of thin air. Or the quandary kind of gets resolved and then kind of gets reinserted because who is actually going to end up getting left behind at the end. Yeah. The fact that the arc does still get uh, hit by the asteroid or the moon or whatever. So there's then this way in which the show is constantly asking and then taking back the, is it ethical for them to be able to skip the line? Are they displacing people who's fair to get on the train and not get on the train or the arc and not get on the arc? And I think that these are trolley problems. The trolley problem is bullshit. We all understand this. The memes are a billion times better than the question itself. 100%. But this is the Loki version of the trolley problem. So my initial response to this was, you're taking this way too seriously. But also, like, I love that. Because, again, and I think the way that you put this at the outset, which is, like, it's not necessarily that the show is aggressively raising these questions, but it's allowing us to raise the questions. And I think that, like, there is value in that, both in terms of, like, our, you know, already too serious conversation about this entertaining episode of television, but also, like, potentially pedagogical usefulness in this, right? If you were teaching the trolley problem, you could, like, ostensibly show these pieces and sort of, like, develop it that way, right? Raising these questions or allowing us to raise these questions is productive, now, again, I think some of this is, like, back on Loki's, like, uh, like, taped together logic Correct. of, of like, if we get on the train, like, it, if we get on the arc, it, it might save everyone. And it's like, it might. But that's also, like, if a butterfly flaps its wings in Malaysia vibes. <laughs> I'm just happy that I got accused of taking this way too seriously. Yeah, you should be. It's uh, few and far between. As we've established, I'm exceedingly generous towards this uh, television property. (laughs) I think that was you being uh, like doubly generous towards yourself. (laughs) I'm just trying to get in the spirit of our guy Loki. All right. You know what? Make mischief, man. (laughs) That's that's right. My mischief is trolley problems and the MCU. Honestly, that is true. (laughs) Like that actually, if I were, if I had to like describe your mischief using something in pop culture, I think that that might be what I got to. Wow. All right. So, uh, hopefully I don't have to go get my mind right by the TVA now that they know how to catch me. Fine. Who's who's making trolley problem? Uh, Commentary. And that does sort of like bring us nicely into our politics and the MCU segment. We planned it a little bit, but uh, it was also a little bit impromptu. That's true. Um, So talk to me about some of the other quandaries that get raised in this episode. Sure. So I think that related to the, is there an ethical quandary posed by Loki and Sylvie need to skip the line? It's a broader question that is, again, uh, barely touched on here and it's not thematized the same sense as in like something like Snowpiercer, I guess. Oh my God. Listen, we already had Harry Styles' corner, but I'm not going to pass up an opportunity for Chris Evans' corner. 
That's why I forgot that he was. Oh, uh, he plays a, a dirty, like, man who eats baby flesh. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody on the train, what is what is the Snowpiercer tagline? Like, socialism on one train or something like that? I don't remember. One of the professors, one of the members of my committee uh, during my PhD was, like, obsessed with Snowpiercer when it came out and consistently shows it to his, like, theory pro seminar now. <laughs> and it's like... It's a good movie, but, like, you don't need to waste an evening watching this movie, like, together. <laughs> we got it. Anyway, uh, Snowpiercer, uh, Tandems aside, there's the fact that it is seemingly the wealthier you are, the more likely you are to get on this train mm-hmm. that's taking people to the Ark. And so as we think about kind of our own world and who is most able to adapt or survive yeah. amid coming climate and perhaps other apocalypses, it's going to be those with more wealth, more forms of privilege, more access to power, these sorts of things. So there's just the way in which that is being depicted. And, you know, I still am more critical than not of the, sure. oh, well, there's all these, you know, apocalypses and natural disasters that happened that they joke about in the previous episode. But the fact that, again, there's this available for us to say, like, we can ask ourselves, okay, if there, if slash when there's apocalyptic-like events on our own planet, yeah. right, who actually has access to actual or proverbial trains is, I think, a relevant question. Yeah, I think that that's right. And I think, like, the other thing the show lets us think a little bit about, like, what does it mean to be, to, like, be flung into an apocalypse versus what does it mean to, like, experience the sort of, like, slow burn of yeah. of an apocalypse, right? Like, especially when, like, climate change or we can imagine that, like, this moon crashing situation was probably, like, something a little bit more akin to climate change where it was sort of, like, possible for a long time. Although I did just watch the movie Moonfall. And so I guess, like, what I'm thinking about is that Sylvie and Loki, there's, a, there's an element of privilege in the, like, Sylvie and Loki entering into this. Sure. And part of, I think this is like part of the perspective on the show is like, we're seeing this, we're seeing and experiencing this apocalypse through the lens of Sylvie and Loki, the sort of like travelers to apocalypses. Yes. And Sylvie says like, this is the worst one. Like this is one of the worst ones. Um, and we're only getting these small glimpses of like the people who have actually, survived this till this point. Yeah. And so thus we have the contrast between Loki and Sylvie as the elites who are able to skip the line. Exactly. And like, there's what this one image of a black woman with a child who's like pushed back in line as they are going to the front of the line. Right. So there's that contrast that we get, even as they are the heroes or anti-heroes or what have you, there's still that explicit contrast that is being made. Yeah, and I would say that the other thing that this uh, raised for me was it. Ra- I've been writing a lot about the Trojan women lately, which is like I would say a, pl- uh, your- a play by Euripides from the fifth century BCE that takes place at the end of the Trojan War when Troy is decimated and only the the women are left, and they've been enslaved by the Greeks. And the play is sort of the series of laments. And I couldn't help but think about that play and sort of like that we were missing that at the end of this, right? Like Sylvie and Loki are, I mean, there's maybe a little bit of not lamentation, but like 
regret or worry, but we are not getting the sort of like full emotional range of responses to the end of a world that I wanted. A little bonus cave content for us. Uh, woman reference. You know, we, we love, a. I will, I will smash a Euripides reference into anything and everything almost as much as I'll smash a Harry Styles uh, (laughs) section. I think the end result of that is that you're going to like dramaturg of like an adaptation of a Euripides play where Harry Styles is the lead is, is a lead. Yes. Harry Styles would be, first of all, he could be my Jason any day. I'll murder his sons. <laughs> um, but I also think he would be a great ion. Listen, Harry Styles would kill Euripides' play. It'd be great. <laughs> we should all be so lucky to get that. <laughs> all right. Should we go to the cave additionally? Yeah, let's go to the actual cave. All right. This week in the cave, we've, we're back in the cave. We're back in the cave. Take we've, it away. We've got a, we're going to have Plato uh, go into the cave of his own creation with us. We love it. So I proffered this theory to Danielle before we started recording. And I thought it was just, again, another taking this way too seriously and being ridiculous. And then she said we should do it for the cave. We have so, to. Like, we, I could not. Okay. So my uh, cave with Plato this week is to suggest that the TVA is the Clipolis, the just city in the Republic, if we take Plato at his most literally or seriously and at his most dystopianly, right? And so here are some characteristics or some analogies we can make, right? Mm -hmm. We can think about the fact that we find on this episode that the variants had some previous life and they're just like taken away and they become, you know, the fascist time cops or whatever, right? So we have, you know, this remark that the character of Socrates makes of, well, we're just going to keep everybody 10 and under and banish everyone else from the rest of the city. (laughs) And uh, that's how we found the Clopolis, right? And so like, there's, I think, some parallels there. And that's this general sort of, there must be some kind of like special uh, training that has to take place. You've got a a set of, um, we might say, guardians you know, which just so happened to be in both texts, just, just, just saying, so happens, just so happens who operate, but with a specialized set of knowledge about how society works yeah. and people's origins and where they come from yeah. and about how the universe or the polity works yeah. while everybody else is lied to. Yeah. I would also say that there is considerable like cloudiness amongst the guardians about reproduction exactly and and who our parents and where where new guardians come from yeah like it's sort of explained to us in the text but there is like this necessary this necessary like ambiguity that is inflicted upon the guardians which i think like it's not a one-to-one, but it, mm-hmm. it, mirror, it mirrors something that's happening in with the TVA and yeah. the sort of variants. Absolutely. And then we have, like, the space lizards themselves, the timekeepers, <laughs> who are some philosopher, philosopher, kings, queens, entities, beings, rulers, if I've ever heard of one. One million percent. Right? Honestly, this might be our best cave. I don't I'm, know about that. This... this this blew my mind and I've already heard it once and I'm, I'm still excited about it. I also am generally very excited about Plato. So (laughs) it might be some of that. I might've just, uh, emailed a song of ice and fire podcast and been like, you should talk about Plato in the cave and like a riddle about shadows on the wall in the song of ice and fire. 
I hope they do, and I hope they credit you. I, I hope they ask me to be on it. I'll be listen honest. to it. Yeah, <laughs> obviously, um, obviously that. So yeah, so that that was my jaunt to the cave. I love it. I think, first of all, it fulfills what I have decided as a rule, that we need to be in the cave with Plato at least once a season. He would also, I think, be a fan of that law. Yeah. Plato loves laws. Sure does. His Athenian stranger is all about, like, setting up a structure for society. Can I add add another further layer to this that I meant to say, and then this slipped my mind, and now it's back? Um, There's also a certain kind of, like, censorship, what stories are we able to tell, what must be hidden, what can be said and not be said. What form can things be set in? precisely. No Trojan women in the the TVA Calypolis. Only in not-quite-great books. Only in not-quite-great books, and always in not-quite-great books. (laughs) Always already in not-quite-great books. Oh, my God. All right, that that was my addendum. John, I think we did it. I think we did. This is a very successful first in-person record. Absolutely. This is actually the first time that we've been on a podcast in person together, although it is not the first time we've been on a podcast together. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> and our podcast isn't even the first podcast that we were on together. Precisely. So. Precisely. Um, I would say, like, congratulations to us. Yeah. And congratulations to everyone who's listening. And congratulations to the pink neoliberal co-working space that we found ourselves in. Some nice ex- brick walls. We love, the, you're brick. Some we love the brick walls. Is some some uh, chairs that move around a bit. Yeah. yeah, we love it. We do. Thanks to, uh, what is this place called? We're, we'll credit them on Twitter. Uh, yeah, thanks to this place for, for housing us. Thanks, as always, to producer Amy. Thank you to our pink hosts for sparking our creativity. Oh, my God. I hate, I hate it here. <laughs> <laughs> um, next up in the feed, I believe we've got The American Season 2, Episode 3 on Thursday. It's with called, producer Amy. With producer Amy. It's called The Walk-In. And then next week on Tuesday, Loki season one, episode four, the Nexus event. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us on Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast, which is created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, Mr. Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time. Go play some racquetball.